Welcome back to Oral Max Facts. We are bringing another episode of Fifty Shade of Purple with Brandon Vermes. Today we are going to talk about lichen planus. Yeah, so I wanted to bring some attention to a white paper released by the um, American Academy of Oral Maxillofacial Pathology, which is like RAOMS. Um, and this white paper talks about the diagnosis of lichen planus. I think this is a incredibly helpful paper that gives um, the best overview about lichen planus and the diseases that mimic it. Um, lichen planus is an important entity because, uh, honestly, barely a week goes by without seeing one or two cases with a lichen planus presentation. Believe it or not, the diagnosis of lichen planus is very controversial, and it is clinically essential to be able to diagnose this accurately because it has many other disease mimickers. And obviously, different diseases have different treatment modalities. So why can't we all be on the same page about diagnosis of lichen planus? As it is a super common disease we deal with all the time, you would think different pathologists and clinicians be able to come to the same page. But no, they're not. The, the reason is different pathologists and clinicians use different criteria to diagnose lichen planus. And we will explore that in details. Before we begin, we want to give you a DLDR of the main point we want to talk about. One, why is the diagnosis of lichen planus challenging and what should be your differential diagnosis? Two, is lichen planus a pre-malignant lesion or does it have a higher than expected risk for squamous cell carcinoma? And lastly, what is the treatment algorithm? Should we use topical corticosteroid first or tacrolimus. Brandon, tell us why it's so hard to diagnose lichen planus. Well, so uh, the white paper that we included in the references um, talks about the challenges of the diagnosis of oral lichen planus. Um, the big issue is that the histology of lichen planus is not 100% specific. Um, there are other uh, disorders that clinically or histologically resemble oral lichen planus. Um, additionally, another thing that makes it an issue is that the histopathologic features of oral lichen planus um, can kind of fall on a spectrum. Uh, to some degree, the histologic features are going to change depending on whether or not the lesion is like waxing or waning, uh, whether or not it's like um, one of the different subtypes of oral lichen planus, like reticular will look different than ulcerative or, um, or erosive. And it'll also depend on whether or not the patient's getting steroid treatment. So these are all things that can modify the appearance and the fact that it can look kind of like other stuff. It's really hard to make the diagnosis strictly on a histologic ground. So let's go back to the clinical feature of the lichen planus. There are few different clinical subtypes, uh, with reticular being the most common. That's the white and lacy stri. We also have erosive, where the lesions are more ulcerative, but generally you will be able to see some reticular components even in the erosive subtype. Sometimes gingiva is involved, and that would be the disquimative gingivitis. Where mucous membrane pamphigoid and pamphigus vulgaris can be on the differential. There are also plaque-type lesions, and generally the lesions are fairly symmetrical. I would be cautioned to make a diagnosis of a single location lesion as lincoln planus. 
A lot of times these uh, single location lichen planus lesions, um, you know, unless you know that the patient has had multiple lesions sometime before that look classically like lichen planus, um, some of these single location lichen planuses, um, I'm using air quotes um, for those of you who are audio only, a lot of these wound up being um, dysplastic lesions. That, and one of the things that dysplasia can do is they can have a band-like inflammatory infiltrate. It can have some, you know, definitionally dysplasia does have some changes in the basal cell layer that can maybe sort of kind of look like lichen planus, maybe a little bit. And so sometimes the concern is that these single lesion lichen planuses were actually epithelial dysplasias. And as we'll talk about later in um, talking about the controversy regarding malignant transformation of lichen planus to squamous cell carcinoma, um, we're going to talk a little bit about how, because of the differences in how we diagnose lichen planus, these single location lichen planuses may have been epithelial dysplasia that had a somewhat lichenoid appearance. So lichen planus was delivered as a diagnosis, but in reality, they just represented a dysplasia. I see. So Brandon, can you break down the histology of lichen planus? You know, I'm going to go as quick as I can because um, I'm going to be honest that histology, I think for most people is a little boring. You said (laughs) it, not us. (laughs) I said it, not you. Um, And so the basic things that we're looking for, and again, these aren't 100% specific just to diagnose lichen planus based on pathology alone. But what we're going to see is we're going to see a band-like predominantly lymphocytic inflammatory infiltrate. Uh, We'd also like to see lymphocytic exocytosis, which just means that the lymphocytes are going out of the connective tissue and they're starting to go into the epithelium. And we also like to see hydropic degeneration of the basal cell layer, where basically, you know, you're used to seeing this um, nicely defined basal cell layer and it slowly matures as it gets closer and closer into the oral cavity. Mm -hmm. In this, we sort of see a loss of the definition of the basal cell layer. Interesting. And so there are other things that we often see but aren't typically regarded as 100% essential for the diagnosis, which are colloid bodies, which are degenerated keratinocytes. Mm-hmm. Um, we can see other epithelial alterations ranging from atrophy to hyperkeratosis. That's a whole range of variations. Yep. So like either thin or thick epithelium. Um, the people who think that um, lichen planus may be a precursor to oral squamous cell carcinoma believe that in some cases where the epithelium is atrophic, it serves as less of a protective factor against mutagens. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we can see those things. We might also see sawtooth reedy ridges, eosinophilia of the basement membrane, artifactual separation from the epithelium, from the tissue. We can see um, post-inflammatory pigmentary changes. Um, A lot of different features that we might see, that we might not see. And that's compounded by, again, variances in this histologic appearance caused by site selection, whether or not these have been treated with steroids, whether or not the lesions are waxing or waning, whether or not you see an ulcer, and just by... Inevitably, different pathologists are going to call different things different things. And that kind of brings us back to the point we mentioned in our previous episode regarding leaving detailed clinical presentation information as a cue for your oral pathologist. Yes, please. (laughs) So what are the disease mimickers that look like lichen planus? As we mentioned some of them, mucous membrane pamphigoid is one of them. What are the disease mimickers? One is mucous membrane pamphigoid. Another one is lichen planus pamphigoides. 
chronic graft versus host disease is is another differential diagnosis. So are chronic ulcerative stomatitis, oral lichenoid drug reactions, oral lichenoid contact hypersensitivity reaction, lupus erythematosus, and lastly, proliferative verrucous leukoplakia. Yeah, so the reason why some of these can be very similar, at least from a histologic perspective, so like oral lichenoid drug hypersensitivity, oral lichenoid contact hypersensitivity, lupus erythematosus, and chronic graft-versus-host disease can have that sort of band-like inflammatory infiltrate with colloid bodies and hydropic degeneration of the basal cell layer. Sometimes they can have, depending on the size of the biopsy, and again, at what stage or the biopsy has been taken, whether or not it's been treated, etc., there can be some histologic features that point us in a specific direction. So for example, the presence of eosinophils or a deeper inflammatory response suggests something like an oral lichenoid drug hypersensitivity. Definitive sawtooth 3D ridges and a eosinophilic band at the basement membrane are more suggestive of lichen planus. The issue with these sawtooth 3D ridges is that if you get a group of 100 pathologists together, I would be very surprised if they could consistently agree on what qualifies as a so-called uh, sawtooth 3D ridge. For the erosive type, we could consider pemphigus vulgaris or mucous membrane pemphigoid. And in those cases, uh, direct immunofluorescence will help. In those cases, typically your pathologist um, may leave a comment saying like, ah, it could be one of these things, consider resubmission of additional material in Michelle's Zuzu's solution. This brings us to how can you make your oral pathologist's life easier? Drum roll, please. Thank you. So in your oral path slip, put some of, some of the information, such as whether the lesions was multifocal and had a symmetric distribution. What was the subtype of the lesion? Was it more erosive? Was it reticular, atropic, plaque-like? You could also talk about the location and make sure that the lesion is not localized in the area if the patient uses a smokeless tobacco replacement or if they recently had a dental restoration. And lastly, whether or not the lesion onset correlates with the start of a medication or use of a cinnamon-containing products. If you want to like handwrite those things, um, that's totally cool. Um, this white paper also includes like a table that is a, um, you could print off. It's, a, it's an absolutely fantastic checklist that you can use for not only your own documentation, but you can include it with the biopsy submission forms that you submit. Um, and that ensures that you have enough information um, to help the pathologist make um, that clinical pathologic correlation to help you out. We'll also include that checklist on our Instagram. Because, as we discussed, there's different clinical presentation and variation in the histological presentation of this lesion, it's important to keep these patients on a regular recall. Recall interval it has not been defined yet, but it would depend on your differential diagnosis. If the main question is whether or not a patient has early proliferative varicose leukoplakia, which may match all of the criteria we mentioned versus lichen planus, you may want to have a more frequent recall with an eye towards evaluating the response of treatment for a tentative diagnosis of lichen planus. Conventional wisdom recommends an annual revisit. 
So this kind of brings us to a second clinical question of the episode. Is lichen planus a premalignant lesion or does it have a higher than expected risk for squamous cell carcinoma? The reported oral lichen planus malignant transformation rate varies from 0.4% to 12.5% with an overall average rate of 1.09% cited in a recent meta-analysis and systematic review of over 7,000 patients in 16 studies. For this reason, in World Health Organization, they have designated oral lichen planus as a pre-malignant condition. Many oral lichen planus studies have investigated molecular events and mechanism that is involved in carcinogenesis, such as telomerase activity, cytogenetic abnormalities, expression of P53, P21, and a lot of other molecular markers that could give them a hint whether or not lichen planus has a higher chance of uh, becoming a malignant lesion. However, the results of these studies have not shown the evidence of premalignant potential as convincing, consistent, or conclusive of that that characterizes epithelial dysplasia. So this was a very long way to say the controversy about the premalignant nature of oral lichen planus remains unresolved. And this is another reason why we should keep a close eye on the patients with lichen planus lesions and put them on an annual recall at least. Yeah, just just to reiterate, it's a, a lot of the studies historically, because we haven't always agreed on when something is lichen planus. Um, and sometimes patients get a diagnosis of lichen planus when they just have a single lesion that was truly a dysplasia that looked a little lichenoid. Those patients, as you might imagine, if they have a true dysplasia that looks kind of like lichen planus histologically and it gets called lichen planus, um, it's going to look like that patient has, um, you know, a condition that's going to lead to cancer. But we, we know a little bit better now. Part of the reason why this white paper was released to, is to try to educate everyone on, on ways to make the diagnosis of lichen planus a little more consistent. So that way we can get a better idea on whether or not, for example, is lichen planus a actually pre-malignant condition. And as always, we, you can call your pathologist if you have any question about the lesion. Right. So like, for example, you might be a little suspicious about the lesion. You might think that it looks potentially a little dysplastic. You could include that in your form. Or if something gets returned as lichen planus and you don't think it's lichen planus, just just call us uh, and, and ask us if we identified any uh, features of dysplasia. Uh, if you have questions on um, any specific case, of course, or you know you notice something, a follow-up, give us a ring. And of course, um, one of the things that we would love is if you could use that checklist. <laughs> we'll put that on the Instagram for sure. Oh, yeah. Okay, so let's move to the last clinical question of the day. We're going to talk about the treatment of lichen planus. And for this section, we got a lot of good wisdom from oral lichen planus and oral lichenoid lesions, diagnosis, diagnostic and therapeutic consideration, doctors El Hashami and colleagues. So let us give you the bottom line first. There are four main classes of medical interventions that have been identified in treatment of lichen planus. 
They are corticosteroids, retinoids, and calciurin inhibitors, such as cyclosporin and tacrolimus. Lastly, believe it or not, is the UV phototherapy, which, as you can imagine, rarely is used because UV phototherapy itself could cause malignant lesion. Topical corticosteroids are the first line of the treatment. Currently, there is insufficient evidence regarding the different dosage formulations or modules of or mode of delivery of these topical corticosteroids. We have topical steroids in a form of paste, spray, and mouthwash. We don't know which one is the most effective way. Systematic corticosteroids are the first line of treatment only for severe and widespread oral lichen planus or lichen planus involving other mucocutaneous sites, such as vaginal, as well as if you have a very resistant um, lesions to topical therapies. So let's dig in a little bit for those nerds out there who wants to know the nitty gritty details behind these wisdoms. Corticosteroids were investigated in 12 trials. Of these, four were placebo controlled. Altogether, there were 300 individuals that were examined in these studies, and each study had 20 to 60 individuals. Most studies were not focused on investigating the value of corticosteroid in treatment of oral lichen planus per se, but they did compare the effectiveness of the different formulas and different classes of corticosteroid and different strength of topical steroid and the frequency of the application. So the specific medications that they included in this particular review are fluocinonide, um, fluocinolone acetonide, uh, triamcinolone acetonide, clobetazole propionate, fluticasone propionate, and beta-methoxone valerate um, or sodium with uh, sodium phosphate for topical therapy. And they range the dosages from like 0.025% to 0.5%. And they change the frequency of the application varying from two, three, or four times a day. And the average duration of these studies was between four and eight weeks, except for one, which was um, for six months. So there was a study that compared systemic plus topical versus topical alone, and they didn't find a difference in the outcome between uh, systemic and topical corticosteroids. So in only one trial was systemic corticosteroids used. Um, they used 50 milligrams of prednisone a day uh, for up to 60 days. And there just aren't too many well-designed trials about many of these, but especially for systemic corticosteroids. At least at the time of this study, none of these have used a dosage based on the patient's weight. So what about side effects, you wonder? Well, not all studies with corticosteroids reported side effects. Well-reported oral candidiasis was the most frequent side effect, as you can imagine. Side effects were more prevalent with systematic corticosteroids than topical agents. Again, that also very much makes sense. The overall conclusion suggests that corticosteroids are effective in management of oral lichen planus. Topical agents are unlikely to cause serious side effects, and there hasn't been a study determining if adhesive vehicles are better than mouth rinses. So there you go, folks. That's your next research topic. As always, Oral Max Facts bring you the next <laughs> high-yield topic to study or research. 
The second group of medicine commonly used in treatment of lichen planus is calcineurin inhibitors. Calcineurin inhibitors, such as tacrolimus, are immunosuppressive drugs. They come with the FDA black box warning that these agents have a theoretical increased risk of malignancy, squamous cell carcinoma and lymphoma in particular. There has been a recent case report of a patient with oral lichen planus that used the topical tacrolimus at 0.1% and was linked to development of a squamous cell carcinoma. So I would say use these agents as your second line of treatment instead of your first line of treatment. Okay, folks, thanks for nerding out with us about lichen planus. Let us know what's the next oral path you want to learn about. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>